Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ghost Hunting in New England. Your favorite spooky podcast. Hello and happy Wednesday. Welcome to this week's episode of Ghost Hunting in New England with your hosts, Amelia and Beth. And today we are talking about something very cool and interesting, and that is mummies. (laughs) And we don't mean like how Beth is a mummy to Bobby. We mean uh, (laughs) we mean the spooky wrapped up mummies of Egypt and some other places too. Actually, none of my stories are from Egypt. And Both of mine are. Wonderful. Good. I'm glad we have our bases covered then. Money of the world. I also want to say that for this week, we are well outside of both New England and ghosts. But haunted mummies. So haunted there are mummies, ghosts. Yeah. Haunted. Well, yeah. So cursed, cursed mummies, maybe? Mine are more cursed. cursed. Mine are more okay. cursed than haunted. Mm, I have one haunted, one cursed. Okay. Yeah. But they'll be fun. Should we dive right in? What did Paul say when I told him we were doing this? I don't know. I wasn't there. It it was a really bad joke. I was like, yeah, like mummies. And he's like, oh, good for people who like to rap stuff. I was like, no. But I don't. (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, sure. Let's jump right in. You want to go first? Um, Yeah, if you want. All right. All right. So I am going to talk a little bit about actually a fairly famous cursed mummy uh, that lots of people seem to know about. Um, And so I'm not going to go into too many of the nitty gritty details because I think a lot of people already know a certain amount about this. But I am talking about King Tut and the Pharaoh's curse. So to just go with a quick reminder of the life and times of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun. He was pretty much just a blip on the history of Egyptian pharaohs and queens. He ruled from 1332 to 1322 BC, and he was a whopping 19 years old when he died. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. he They called him the boy king. Wow. Yeah. Um, so as was traditional for Egyptian royalty, he was given a grand burial in a fancy tomb. He hadn't been pharaoh for very long, so they didn't have time to build a giant pyramid. There are some ideas that because of his sudden and unexpected death, uh, it means he was actually buried in a tomb that was intended for someone else who had already who had already been buried in that tomb. And they just walled that person up and used the rest of the space for the king. And so they've they've recently gone through with um, radar, not radar, uh, not ultrasound, but some sort of um, ground penetrating sound device thing that they can tell that there's a couple of big open areas inside the tomb that have never been explored. 
So that's one of the the really fun things. They may are they going to explore it? Uh, perhaps at some point. Uh, when he died, and this tomb that he was in was decorated, uh, it was filled with all the things he would need on his journey to the afterlife, and ultimately sealed. And it was closed with a curse, which was another tradition for Egyptian royalty. The ancient Egyptians used curses as a primitive sort of security system to deter people from entering the tombs. Amelia, do you know why people would break into the tombs in ancient Egypt? They wanted the Holy Grail. Sort and of. they were buried with all their money. Yeah, exactly. So many of the tombs that had been opened before Tut's tomb also bore inscriptions of curses on them, uh, curses on anyone who opened the tomb. And with all the jewels and gold and food and royal stuffs that were buried with the pharaohs, the tombs were a prime target for thieves following a burial. So Tut's people gave him the protection of the curse. Death shall come on swift wings to him who disturbs the peace of the king. And I'm going to try when I edit this to use some sort of fancy effect to make that sound really echoey and impressive, because I feel like it should be like the voice of God, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're going to fast forward three centuries. And now we have the famous Howard Carter, the renowned British archaeologist and his team who, after having since searched since 1891, have made an amazing discovery. Even though it was believed all the ancient Egyptian tombs had been discovered and exploited, I mean, explored, excuse me, uh, they found another. And on November 26, 1922, almost 30 years he's been there, more than 30 years he's been there, Mr. Carter and his fellow archaeologists, who happened to be the guy financing the whole adventure, Lord Carnivon, isn't that a great name? Lord Carnivon. They opened and entered the tomb. It was completely intact from when it had been sealed 3,245 years before. It was an unbelievable find that ignited tut mania all over the world. I'm not even kidding. People all over Europe and the U.S. started going all in for Egyptian culture. And the people ate up the idea that there was a curse being put on the team who had disturbed the peace of the king. As the excavation and preservation began, the deaths did start coming swiftly. The very day the tomb was opened, Howard Carter's canary, a vital instrument in underground work, died. Eaten by a cobra in its own cage. Wow. Right? Next, Lord Carnivon, who was also known by regular people as George Herbert. Wait, what? His name was George Herbert, but he was... Why why do you go by Lord Carnivon? Well, like Prince Philip uh, Montbatten was also known as the Duke of Edinburgh. Is Carnivon a place? I, I assume so. Hmm. It's just a title. Anyway, so George Hebert, he was bit by a mosquito. And then when he was shaving, he nicked the bite. It ended up infected and he died of blood poisoning. He got sepsis. Whoa. from shaving and he died April 5th, 1923. So this is only five, six months later. That's crazy. Have you ever had blood poisoning? Uh, I have not. Thankfully. Very scary. Have you had blood poisoning? Yes. Bummer. Did they have to pump you through it full of antibiotics? And Oh yeah. Like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. 
And you know what? I almost didn't tell my mom about it. And I'm glad I did because they said I would have died. Ooh. Yeah, I got an infection on my foot and I saw like this black line running up my ankle. And I was like, uh, maybe I shouldn't tell my mom because I didn't want to know that like I had an infection on my foot. And then I Why? your mom was so calm and she never overreacted yeah. to anything like that. Yeah. And then she started screaming and hitting me and telling me that they were going to cut my foot off and calling like <laughs> the ER as we were going like 100 miles an hour to South Shore Hospital. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, I slowed my feet. Uh, that's good. It's good to yeah, say it, it is good. OK, so Lord Carnivon, Carnivon, uh, he dies. And weirdly enough. His dog supposedly died at the same moment back in England that Lord Carnivon died in Egypt. Whoa. Right. So now we got a dead canary, a dead guy and a dead dog. All right. A month later, we have George J. Gould, a team member who had visited the tomb, and he developed a sudden high fever and died May 16th, 1923 in France. Arthur Mace yet another team member who had explored the tomb. He developed pleurisy and chronic pneumonia and had to leave the excavation site in the spring of 1924 because he was so sick. He never fully recovered and he died in England on April 6th, 1928. So he was just like horribly ill for years after this. He just couldn't recover. Uh, There were rumors that were flying all around that um, he actually died of arsenic poisoning. Maybe, maybe someone just wanted to put him out of his misery. Poor guy. Imagine having pneumonia for four years. That's no, thank you. Yeah, right. All right. Richard Bethel, Howard Carter's secretary, went next. He was a frequent visitor to the Mayfair Club, a <coughs> gentleman's club in London, and he was found dead in his room on November 5th, 1929, after Wait, having like been a strip club, like a brothel. Uh, it's officially referred to as a gentleman's club, but yes, I assume there would be naked women there in some form. Well, he had a room, right? Yeah, he had a room because he was found dead in his room, but he had been in perfect health earlier in the day. But he had a room at a gentleman's club? Yeah. So it had to be a brothel. Yeah, it, it had to be something. So now within seven years, four notable participants in the tomb's excavation, plus one canary and a dog were all dead. But then we have this guy, Howard Carter, right? He's the lead investigator, the big archaeologist. Well, how's he doing, right? Spent seven years. Um, He's actually just fine. In fact, he lived another 16 years before he ended up dying of Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1939. So this, whatever it was that all these people were getting cursed with, uh, Howard Carter was not one of them. And he seemed to be I, I don't know. I get the I get the sense that somehow he was like deflecting the curse onto all of these people around him. So they were all getting sick and he wasn't. And I, I have nothing whatsoever to base that on other than that's it what would my make a good story. <laughs> it would make a really good story. But that's what my hunch tells me. So that's the story of uh, the Pharaoh's curse, the curse of Tutankhamun, the boy king. On to Oopsie the Iceman. Otsi, Otsi the S man. How do how does one spell Otsi? It's O with an. Is it called an umlaut? Two dots is an umlaut. Gotcha. O with two dots T Z I. Otsi, 
Uzi. That's fun Uzi. to say. Uzi. Da. Makes me feel like I dropped something, though. Uzi. <laughs> Oopsie, Uzi. Okay. Uzi, also known as the Iceman and the Similon Man, is a brilliantly preserved natural mummy of a man who lived and died between 3,400 and 3,100 BC. Really ancient stuff. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Do you even think about how humans were alive back then? No, but that's 2000 years before King Tut. That's what I mean. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. Like that is that is further away from the birth of Christ than we are now by a thousand years. Yes. It is. It's wild. I know. That's just amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Okay. So he was found by two German tourists on September 19th, 1991. That's when he was found. I remember when this happened because I was in middle school and it was like all the rage. We were reading about it in science. You were in middle school. I was. So these two German tourists, they were walking off the path between two mountain passes and the body was discovered at an elevation of... 10,530 feet on the east ridge of the, I'm not going to say it right, Finalipizzi in the Alps near the Austrian-Italian border. At first, the tourists suspected the body was a recently dead mountaineer, but the body was eventually removed and identified as extremely ancient. Estimates suggested that Utsi was five foot three at the time of death and weighed 110 pounds. Wait a second. Was, wait a second. This guy that was 5,000 years old was still taller than me. Yeah, I know. I was thinking the same thing. That's, That's like the first thing I thought of when I looked at this. I'm like, five foot three. What the heck? He must have been a monster. I don't know. I don't know if people. So I was looking up this thing because they found some lady a couple years ago. And she had like a gold prosthetic eye and it was like the first use of a prosthetic eye ever found. And I put it on Instagram and I did some research. And if you go on our Instagram, you look at that post and you look in the comments, you see like all my little research about it. And she was like six feet tall. Mm-hmm. And they found other people who were like, they found someone who was like six foot six somewhere. And I'm like, how is that possible? I even think about like Abe Lincoln. I mean, he was six, six. And I thought he had to be like the biggest guy around. We have the occasional like giant who walks around now who's close to eight feet tall. Right. So yeah, I, I imagine Paul and I, we were looking this up the other day. There's been like six people who were over eight feet tall. Like okay. ever, ever. And like three of them yeah. are alive right now. But then I would also think that like the the big, tall, strong guy at five foot three would be the adventurer going off to like Paul Bunyan, his way across the Alps. Well, we'll find out what he was doing because there okay, are great. theories. Okay. All right, where was I? Ba, 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 ba. Five foot three at time of death, weighed 110 pounds and was 45 years old, which I imagine he had to be like the oldest guy. 45? Yeah, that seems pretty old. That's very old. It's like 92 now. Okay. Later DNA <laughs> revealed he had eaten. So this is how good. He was preserved for this long. Okay. Up in the Alps. 
Okay. I'll stop laughing. All right. DNA analysis revealed he had eaten a meal of Ibex meat less than two hours before he died. The heck is Ibex? It's a yak. And that's how I think. I mean, I just said that very confidently. I'm pretty sure it's a yak. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. You had me convinced. Um, but yeah, no, that he was, so five, how, how old is he? Yeah. Over 5,000 years old. And they were able to find what he had eaten two hours before still in his stomach and identify it. Are you looking up what an Ibex is? Yeah. It's a Steinbach. It's a wild goat. Yeah, goats, yaks, all the same. It lives in the mountains of the European Alps. It's a sexually dimorphic species. Males are larger and carry longer carved horns than females. Its coat color is typically brownish gray. It does kind of look like a yak, though. Oh, there you go. See, I was close. Well done. Okay. Utsi was found buried alongside a copper axe, a knife, and a quiver of 14 arrows. His other possessions included berries, two birch bark baskets, and some mushrooms. How is all of this still there? Because it froze, and it's been frozen since then. It's wild and crazy stuff. It was initially believed that Utsi had died during a winter storm in the frosty heights of the Alps. As of 2017, seven deaths have been linked to the discovery of Utsi. It is believed he was angry after being disturbed after 53 centuries. Okay, so let's talk about all this curse. So Rainer Hen had the honor of placing Utsi's frozen remains into the body bag when he was first found. And in 1992, Rainer was traveling to a convention where he planned to give a talk about Utsi. Tragically, he got into a deadly accident and never reached his destination. This happened after one year. No, this happened one year after Uzi was uncovered, making Rainer the first victim of the curse. Next, we have Kurt Fritz. He took his place in history by leading researchers to Uzi's body. He also organized the transportation of the ancient man's remains. An avalanche ended up claiming his life in 1993 when he was only 52. And what's kind of weird about that is that he was the only member of the group he was with who died during the avalanche. And he was like the most experienced guide and like had the most experience with like these elements. So that's what made that like extra weird. It wasn't like me or you getting stuck in an avalanche and being like, well, guess it's time. I like to think that I would not put myself in a position where I might be stuck in an avalanche. Do you ever go skiing? Not since I was a kid. No, me either. Okay, next we have Dieter Warnecke. He wasn't part of the original Utsi excavation and research crew, but his potential connection to the curse was still worth noting. When Helmut Simon appeared in the apps in 2004, Warnecke led a search team. They ultimately discovered Simon's body eight days after he went missing. Here's another weird thing. So a couple hours after his funeral, Warnecke died of a heart attack. Went to the funeral, went home, dies. The leading expert in Utsi is this guy, Conrad Splinder, and he didn't believe in the curse. 
He even joked during an interview saying, I think it's a load of rubbish and it's all media hype. The next thing you will say is I will be next. And lo and behold, he was next. Um, (laughs) He passed in 2005 due to complications from MS. Did he have MS before he got involved with Uzi? I don't know. I didn't look him up that much. Okay. Next is Rainer Holtz. And he was the only person allowed to film the recovery of Uzi's body and later turned it into a footage into an hour long documentary. Did you watch it? No. And right after it came out and he, I don't even know if it came out right after he finished making the film, he died of a brain tumor. Next, we have researcher Tom Loy, and he was renowned for discovering human blood on the Iceman's clothing and his weapons. And you can find his work in a National Geographic documentary in 2002. And he debunked the theory. So before there was this theory that Utsi was like alone on the mountain and he had a hunting accident and he died. But he, this guy, Loy, found four types of human blood on his clothing and was able to come up with this new theory that he got into like a territory skirmish with some other like Stone Agers out there. And, um, died and then he so he got fatally wounded and for some reason I don't know what this is but they were able to like surmise that he had leaned up and died beside his companion who was not located there no so I don't know how they figured that out but where would where would the companion have gone I don't know yeah I'm not buying that theory sorry I don't know it lacks the basic evidence (laughs) it it is the theory people go with now though and they uh, they found the blood at least I don't know I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Okay. So ironically, however, after he found that out, he had came down with a blood disease that wasn't diagnosed until after he studied Utsi and he died of it. And Loy's colleagues, they really didn't like people saying it was part of it. They said it trivializes his death and does not do justice to his life's work when you say that he died as part of a curse. Um, And that he didn't believe in the curse and he thought it was just superstitious and that people just die because they're scientists. So they do all that stuff. But it is interesting that he did die from a blood disease after studying the blood on this guy, Utsi, who was killing everyone. Agreed. That is kind of weird. That's my story. Cool. Oh, actually, um, no, I wanted to say something else. So this day. So now Utsi rests in a refrigerated room at the South Tyrol Archaeological Museum in Bolzano and attracts 300,000 visitors a year, bringing in approximately 5 million or 4 million euros, $5 million or 4 million euros in tourism each year. Okay. So my second story uh, is actually about the British Museum's cursed mummy. And I had never heard of this before. I'm super excited to tell you all the story of the unlucky mummy of the British Museum. It starts all the way back in the 1860s when Thomas Murray, Arthur Wheeler, and some of their buddies went adventuring from England to Egypt for some good old rich people fun. So while they were there, they got up to some partying and shenanigans while on a side trip to Thebes. In their travels, they came across the coffin lid for a high priestess from the temple of Amun-Ra. It was beautifully preserved, and these guys wanted it, all of them. So they, they drew straws to find out who would get to buy it. And Thomas Murray was the lucky guy. So he bought it, had it packed up and shipped back to England all in the same day uh, while he stayed on and continued on his holiday with his buddies. 
And then the weird things started happening like the next day, once this thing was shipped out. So first they're out duck hunting, but Murray's shotgun exploded and injured his arm and hand. And he was in need of medical attention, but this was the 1860s in Africa. So there are no roads, no nearby medical facilities or anything. They have to sail all the way back up the Nile river. It's 300 miles into the wind. It took 10 days. So before they even arrived in Cairo, one of the companions died suddenly while joking and talking about the coffin lid that they had sent back to England. Just like, haha, this is a good time. And like, dead. Whoa. Right. When the ship arrived back to Cairo, Murray's arm couldn't be saved. Gangrene had taken hold and his whole arm had to be amputated. So he's recovering from surgery in Cairo. When another one of the companions who had actually touched the coffin lid died without warning. Within a year of the purchase, there were two hired helpers for the trip who'd been responsible for packing and shipping the coffin lid, and they developed unexplained and painful diseases and died. But none of the connections between these four deaths were made until much later. All right. Murray heals up from his surgery. He goes back to England and he found that the coffin lid was still packed and waiting to be opened. When he opened it, though, he no longer thought that it was this really awesome thing and he was no longer really happy to have it. And instead, he thought it was a bit evil. Right. He was like, I'm not so sure about this thing anymore. He had had it examined by some spiritual advisors who also didn't care for it and suggested maybe he get rid of it. So Murray didn't get rid of the coffin lid. He kept it in his apartment. He had a friend who was a journalist stop by, and she asked if she could borrow the lid to write a story about it. He was surprised about the amount of relief he felt at the suggestion of having it leave his house, and even more relieved when it was finally out. The journalist brings it home and immediately begins to have some terrible things happen. In the short time that she had the coffin, her mother fell down a flight of stairs and died. Her fiance broke it off with her and left. Her dog got rabies and had to be shot. And she herself fell very ill. <laughs> she gives Murray back the coffin lid. Murray didn't want it, if you can believe that. He connected with his old friend, Arthur Wheeler, who was on the trip when they found the coffin lid and asked Arthur if he wanted it. Yes, sir, he did. So Wheeler takes the coffin lid and pretty much immediately falls into a deep depression. He never manages to pull out of it. And he ends up dying, like of just like a broken heart, just a sad, lonely old man. Mr. Wheeler didn't have any wife. He had no children. So his sister ended up taking possession of all of his things. She brought the coffin lid to a photographer to have it photographed, which I guess is a thing. I, I don't really don't know. What year was this? This is sometime in the 1860s or 70s. Oh, wild. She must have had a lot of money. Okay. So when they developed the plates, they were horrified. Looking out from the mask was an angry woman who was just staring hatefully out at the viewer, right? Hmm. The photographer fell ill and died within weeks. Whoa. So as, I guess as you were looking at the picture where the mask was, like you could still see the mask, but almost like overlaid on top of the mask, there was this angry uh ancient egyptian woman's face that was just like staring hate daggers this is kind of like a little bit tangential uh and i'm a little murky on what happened here so i'll just give you the basic idea but somehow 
a random guy ends up with a copy of that photograph that we were just talking about. And when the man brought the photograph to the photographer's house after the photographer died, every single pane of glass in the house shattered the moment he came in with the photo. Just like, whoa, all the windows blew out. So I thought that was just an interesting little tidbit. But back to the unlucky mummy itself. The next owner of the coffin lid after Arthur Wheeler's sister knew Thomas Murray. When he took possession of the coffin lid, he got in touch with Murray and told him about the terrible events connected to the coffin lid. Murray suggested maybe he should get rid of it. So it was offered to the British Museum, who gladly accepted it in 1889. So the first British Museum associate to be a victim wasn't even at the museum yet. An Egyptologist wanted to check it out and go over the whole coffin lid in the privacy of his home, and he was found dead within a week. His house staff said he hadn't slept a moment since the coffin lid arrived in the home. It, for whatever reason, just haunted him, tormented him. He, he just couldn't get to sleep. So he dies. Now somebody's got to pick up the coffin lid and take it from his house over to the museum. And this being the 1889, 1890, we don't have any cars yet. So it's literally a guy driving a carriage, being pulled by horses, bringing this coffin lid. So he delivers the lid to the museum. And then he leaves and he dies in an accident, like an accident with the carriage. It strikes me as very strange that there would have been like horse-drawn carriage accidents, fatal ones, but apparently it was a thing. While the mummy was in the museum, there were all these instances of people trying to take a photograph of it or draw it, and they they just couldn't. They were um, constantly distracted or the their camera would malfunction, whatever. Like nobody could actually get a picture or take a picture of this. So a freelance photographer actually was able to get a photo of the coffin lid. And when those photos were developed, he also saw that malevolent face staring from the mask that the last photographer had gotten. He he brought the developed photos in and gave them to one of the curators at the museum or the curator, whoever it was. And then he went home and killed himself because he was so upset about this. So I don't even know how many people we're into now who have died because of this thing. A lot. Right. So then the staff at the British Museum were afraid of the coffin lid. Starting right after it was put on display, they would hear pounding on the case as though something were trying to get out, or they would hear hysterical crying. And the man in charge of the ancient Egyptian area got so many complaints he had to do something or people were going to start quitting. He took the coffin lid out of the case with the other artifacts and gave it a case by itself in a position of respect in the gallery. They decorated it nice and put up, you know, some signs about how important it was. And that really seemed to keep down the ruckus. But the night staff at the museum still report seeing ghostly apparitions near the case and feeling terror and hate just radiating off the case when they go by there. There were even reports that the unlucky mummy was responsible for sinking the Titanic. So the story is that the British Museum was so scared of the power coming from the mummy that it sold the artifact to a museum in the United States and shipped it over on the maiden voyage of the Titanic. Wow. No such thing happened. The coffin lid has been firmly settled in the British Museum since 1889. And the very first time that it left was actually in 1990 as part of an Australian tour that it went on with a whole bunch of other exhibits. So getting back to my friend, Mr. Murray, the original purchaser. 
So he, as years went by, just lost more and more of his fortune. And he ended up dying just like in poverty in 1912. Just just a sad, poor guy in England. And so, you know how I like to end my little stories with like, oh, you can go to this museum and see it. And it's this much to get in and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's at the British Museum. I didn't look up how much it is to go and see it because I don't think I want to visit that one. I don't think that I need it following me home. Good story, Beth. Oh, thanks. We should have saved that for the end. Should have been the closer story. That was a great story, though. I really enjoyed it. Isn't that? I I thought that was was amazing. I've never heard of that. That's great. My next story. I'm going to mispronounce this name. I feel very bad. I've been practicing it. I don't say it right. Maybe we could have Donna look it up somewhere. So really funny. We didn't bring this up on our last episode, but after we couldn't say the name of the Abel Marl Museum, <laughs> Donna sent me Donna the Abley Marley. Yeah. Send us <laughs> a recording of she called them. <laughs> she sent me a recording of their voicemail message. <laughs> right. I was cracking up. Oh my goodness. Oh, so okay. it's it's actually pronounced the Abelmarl. Oh, she's gonna play it for us. Gonna play it. Thank you for calling Museum of the Abelmarl. Our hours are the Museum of the Abelmarl. So thank you so much, Donna. That is <laughs> oh my god. So funny. Thank you. Anyway, you can do it with this place too. So we are talking about right now the mummies of Guanajato, Guanajato, Guanajato. You no say. So I believe it is the mummies of Guanajato in Mexico. It's in Mexico. Guanajato. 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 Say it with confidence, like you did with that yak. <laughs> The mummies of Guanajito are a number of naturally mummified bodies interred during a cholera outbreak in Guanajuato, Mexico, in 1833. During the pandemic they had down there, more cemeteries had to be opened in San Caveto and Canada de Marfil. Many of the bodies are buried immediately to control the spread of the disease. It is thought that in some cases, the dying may have been buried alive by accident, resulting in horrific facial expressions. But this also could have just been the result of the post-mortem process. But do you want to hear a cool story? No, I'll save the story. I'm going to save the story. Was that your whole story? No. Oh, okay. No. The bodies were interred between 1870 and 1958. No, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Disinterred between 1870 and 1958. That means they were dug back up. During that time, a local tax was in place requiring a fee to be paid for perpetual burial. Some bodies for which the tax was not paid were disinterred. And of those, the ones that were in really good condition were stored in a nearby building. Now, so if you didn't pay your tax or if it, you're already dead, if your loved ones didn't pay the taxes on your grave, they dug you up and what threw you in the ocean? Yes. I found out something interesting about modern days. And I found this interesting thing on this website that I thought some of our customers might be interested in. And it is called. We don't have any customers. Would I say customers? That's not what I meant. You know what I meant. Listeners. We have lots of listeners. Listeners. Okay, so this website I thought everyone would like is radicaldeathstudies.com. 
Radical death studies. Radical death studies. And I should put a caveat that I'm saying them because they are against this museum because they think it is exploitive and they don't think it's a good way to treat dead people. But it was a cool website. Anyway, and I learned this little tidbit on this website. And that is in many Latin American countries like Mexico, public cemeteries have laws for exhuming corpses after five to 10 years after their burial due to the lack of space and high mortality rates in populous cities. If a citizen is wealthy enough, they can either pay for a permanent ossuary in a public cemetery, which costs an average of $200, or have their loved ones buried in a private cemetery, which is significantly more expensive. And then if you go on that website, they go all into like the details about like how many people pick up the bodies and like all this other stuff. It's wild. And there is a very famous, very famous photographer um, who I studied quite a bit in college. And he would go to Mexico and take like homeless, like you can just buy bodies down there or whatever. And he would create these like fantastical photographs um, with the bodies. That's horrifying. That's absolutely horrifying. I'm not going to Mexico again. For sure. For sure. Horrifying. But the artwork. mm, Beautiful. Okay. Uh, The bodies were. I already talked about. Okay. So the climate of Guanajuato provides an environment which can lead to a type of natural mummification. Ooh, cool. But upon further examination, they found out that some of the mummies had, in fact, been partially embalmed. I'm not sure what partially involved means, and I'm okay with not knowing. By the early 1900s, the mummies began attracting tourists. Cemetery workers began charging people just a few pesos to enter the buildings where the bones and and mummies were stored. The law requiring burial tax was abolished in 1958, and the building was then turned into a museum called El Museo de las Momas a.k.a. the Museum of the Mummies, in 1969. As of 2007, the museum continued to exhibit 59 of the total 111 mummies in the collection. One of the mummies, oh, here's my fun story. One of the mummies who was buried alive was that of Inicia Aguilera. She suffered from strange sickness, made her heart stop on several occasions. During one of these incidents, her heart appeared to stop for more than a day. How's that possible? That's dead. Uh, no no heartbeat for a day? Well, thinking she had died, her relatives buried her. But when she her, rang the bell. And she rang the when, bell. No, they didn't have bells in the cemetery. When her body was disinterred, they noticed she was facing down, biting her arm with blood in her mouth. She tried to bite. Had she like scratched out the top of the coffin? Probably, yes. So that's this crazy cemetery. Now, several paranormal phenomenon has been reported, but none of it's really talked about on the internet. But I thought it was such a cool place. I just want to tell you all about it. And it's this is what I mean, why you should have had your story go last. Um, it has an apparition of a tall lady who walks around a lot. A lot of crying babies. They actually have the world's smallest mummies ever live in this museum. And other strange whispering sounds. Well, the sound of footsteps going through the halls. So anyway, if you are interested in going, it's 50 pesos. It's still open today. I looked it up and their website is in Spanish. So good luck trying to figure it out. 50 pesos. It's 20 pesos to a dollar. So it costs you in American money, $2 and 50 cents to get in there. Let's go. That's like the best deal I've heard of all week. Go. 
Of course, you got to go to Mexico where they might steal your body and turn you into art. Do we have any reviews? We do have. We have one review and it comes from Alicia T. Title, love your podcast. Woohoo, us too. Awesome and well done podcast. Well, thank you so much, Ali Shivati. That is very kind of you. Today, I got a note from Kung Fu Sun. And he said, on my way home from a wedding last night, it was late and we were coming down Route 1 in Saugus. We stopped at a gulf to get gas. I turned around and in the middle of Route 1 in a gas station parking lot is a cemetery with like 15 graves. I'm trying to find out more info and I didn't know if you knew anything about it. I don't know anything about it. I do, I do not know anything about that either. And then he sent me this photo. It's kind of a creepy photo, but it says Doty Cemetery, D-O-U-T-Y Cemetery, 1816. And this is on Route 1 in the middle of Saugus by the gas station. Well, what was it? 1816 or 1860? 1816. 1816. Well, I'm yeah. 100% sure that Saugus... That was not Route 1 in Saugus, and there was no gas station there when that cemetery was put Well, in anyway, if anyone knows anything about it, write into the show. Go something at gmail.com. I was going to look it up later, but I had too much to do. Okay, so we got this one on Facebook from Sam Stevens. And hi, if Sam. you Hi, Sam. If you're following Ghost Hunting in New England on Facebook, uh, you may have seen this, but we're going to shout it out there for everybody who did not. I just wanted to say I really enjoy your podcast and I'm catching up on the most recent one. I'm currently waiting for my ferry on the Isle of Wight visiting family, which is in the county of Hampshire, UK, right near Gosport, UK. Two places you have mentioned in your podcast, but in New Hampshire. Wow. The Isle of Wight is very haunted and most famous for being where Queen Victoria lived and died. That was very cool, Sam. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was very cool. We also got a ghost story from Mar over in the Netherlands. Thanks, Mar. Thanks, Mar. It's about a cat. Oh, we love cat stories. I know. My daughter and I moved back to my hometown this year. It is rather difficult to find an affordable place to live here. So I learned that the house I wanted to buy was on the market because the man who lived there died unexpectedly of a heart attack. I decided to take the risk of buying a house with a possibility of a spirit in it. Mar, I can't tell you this yet, but in a few weeks, you will be shocked at the parallels in our life. Okay. Amelia has also taken up playing the cello. (laughs) Yes. Okay. The house needed a lot of work. And one day I was in the house by myself, painting the walls of the living room. From the corner of my eye, I saw a shadow shooting past the door to the kitchen. It looked like a cat. At the time, I decided to ignore it. But it happened again the next day. Only this time, I caught the cat shadow peeking about the door. During the renovations, I saw the shadow cat several times. Once it came scooting down the stairs when I went up. Another time, I was sitting on the floor to paint the wall under the radiator, and I felt it butting its head and body against my back. The cat didn't scare or startle me. I have cats myself and I'm used to them suddenly crossing the path or moving up from me and back to ask for cuddles. Cats always seem to suddenly appear from nowhere. I reconciled with having an extra shadow cat to add to my herd, but once we moved in, the cat seems to have disappeared. 
Or maybe now I just assume that what I see from the corner of my eye is one of my own black cats. The interesting thing is that my new neighbor here told me one day that a man who lived here before me absolutely adored cats. And they actually buried one of his cats right next to the front door, where now grows a beautiful Nigelia flower. I never saw the ghost of the man who died here. Maybe he still hangs around, but the stories I've heard about him make me believe that he does. He would only bring good energy with him, as well as cheerful and helpful man who was loved by his neighbors. Great story. That is a great story. That sounds uh, like the kind of soul that would have just moved on that probably wouldn't want to just hang yeah. around. No, I agree. I agree. I'm also wondering if you, since you're a cat lover and we're cat lovers, if you've been to the cat museum in Amsterdam, which let me tell everyone listening, if you have a chance to go, you got to go. You got to go. Because, you know, if you had like a cat museum here in uh, the United States, it'd probably be like pretty stupid, pretty lame. Like, I don't know, like what would be at the cat museum? Like some quirky photos of cats, maybe, maybe like anatomical of, drawings of cats. I don't know. A bunch of cat ladies and their doilies. Cat ladies, whatever. So the cat museum in Amsterdam, it's this like beautiful mansion where this eccentric man lived who loved his cats. There are actual cats walking around there, which is cool. Not like an excessive amount, like four. But then you have outfits from the original cast on cats on Broadway. You have Rembrandt paintings of his cats. You have Picasso sketches of his cats. It's it's incredible. It's a very I, I went when I was in college and I just loved it. I, I oh, my God. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. So if anyone has a chance to go, if you find yourself in Amsterdam and you find yourself not in a total cloud of craziness, then make your way to the cat museum. It's a nice place. Cool. Yeah. I definitely am interested in going to the cat museum. You got it. That sounds fun. Yeah. You got to go. Beth. Amelia. Is that all we have for tonight, Beth? Well, I think the only thing I have left to say is if you're in a restaurant, put your mask on. Just put it on. Check us out on Facebook. We're also on Instagram, ghost hunting in New England. We have a website ghosthuntinginnewengland.com. We are on email. We're on YouTube. We got a lot of YouTube comments this week. We never get YouTube comments. No one ever. And like when we do, it's just like links to pornography. But we got two. One, one person wants to want to go somewhere with us. Nice. Yeah. Do they live near us? Yeah, they live around here. Oh, crazy. I got to get right. back to them. All right. Well, well, if you left a comment, Amelia will get back to you. I'll get back to you. You'll have to send us your resume and, you know, pass a Corey check before. We and then we had go someone meet else was somewhere. asking um, Peyton, um, Peyton Pugmire, if he took insurance and he doesn't. So you got to oh. pay out of pocket. And that's worth it. Yeah, definitely worth it. Oh, yeah. Apparently we're on YouTube. Check us out on YouTube. Check us out on YouTube. We people, No one people. listens to us on YouTube, please. You know what's really like you ever like get in one of those situations, someone where like, I, and I do this to people too. So I get it. I get it. I've, I've done it. I'm totally guilty of doing this to people, but I was at an event and, uh, with a pretty well-known ghost hunting group. And I was like, oh yeah, I have the ghost hunting in New England podcast. And one of the guys was like, oh yeah, I watch you guys on YouTube all the time. And I was like, <laughs> and Paul and I just like gave this look, like we're not going to correct them. Right. Like that would, we didn't want to be impolite about it. And like, you could just tell that he immediately was like, they definitely aren't on YouTube. 
I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, you watch this all the time. Great. All right. Anyway, that's all we got. Yep. Please visit We're us on the social media. Ghostingingnewengland.com. Send us an email, ghosthuntingingnewengland at gmail.com. Follow Amelia on Twitter, ghost hunting NE. Ghost hunting NE. Yeah, song. so we're on Audible. Uh, listen to us boop, on Spotify. Boop, boop. Leave yeah, us and five even, star if you, review. even if you listen to us somewhere else, if you have Audible, go on to Audible and search us and leave us a 15 star review, please. Five star, five star, five star. I really, it would really mean a lot to us. I, I am such, and Beth is too. We listen to a lot of Audible. I want us to like get reviews on Audible. We're almost at 10. <laughs> Love us to that's, 11. Amelia, that's 150 stars right there. 150 stars. Amelia's all about the stars. She wants more Twitter followers, more stars. More of it all, baby. And as always, happy hunting. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary BGW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus